Welcome to the Midnight Myth Time Machine. We're publishing our back catalog week by week to make our older episodes available on your favorite podcast platforms. What you're about to hear is episode six, Rebel Rebel, which originally aired in March of 2017. Derek and I discuss rebellion, resistance, and revolution in your favorite stories. From the Hunger Games to Star Wars in the realms of sci-fi and fantasy, and dramatizations of historical events like Les Miserables and Hamilton. You'll also hear me admit that I don't know who Dr. Doom is. So hop in the time machine with us and enjoy episode six, Rebel Rebel. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to the Midnight Myth. Episode six. Let's get this episode started. This episode is entitled Rebel Rebel. And it is about David Bowie. Hot Tramp, I love you so. No, it's actually not about David Bowie. I wish it was about David Bowie. Most of our things should be about David Bowie. I agree. But uh, this episode is actually inspired by some of the current uh, political events happening right now. Mm-hmm. And that there are a lot of people self-identifying as the resistance. Yeah. And to be clear, they're resisting the 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 new White House Republican administration. Yes. And uh that resistance kind of got us thinking about storytelling a little bit. Yeah. Uh here at the Midnight Myth, we like to examine those elements of storytelling that are most universal, um, and those elements of storytelling that we think are essential to creating a good story that that resonates in your bones. And we thought, you know, what's a what's a more American story? What's a more uh, what's a more powerful story than a story of a bunch of underdogs rebelling against an empire? Yeah, and I mean, speaking from the sort of the the, his, the student of history, um, you know, every national cultural identity, when it connects to its history, needs an element of mythos. And what I say by mythos, I mean Greek for myth. I mean, we need some sort of a narrative that ties America together. And I think the American narrative as a, as a nation born out of a rebellion 
is ingrained in us. And I think that has had an effect on our storytelling. I agree. Uh, and, and this national myth that you talk about, I've been reading this book by former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, highly recommend Prague Winter, uh, which I'll talk about in one of the blog posts. I think check out the blog from uh, Rock Bottom uh, for a little more information on that book. But she talks about a nation's history in general as being a combination of the actual historical events that occur on its soil, uh, a combination of that and its myths and its legends. So, you know, there is no England without Robin Hood, or there is no, uh, there's no Hungary without, uh, or Slovakia without the Blood Countess, things like this. Sure, there's um, no Rome without there's the... There's no Rome without, without Remus and Romulus. Remus and Romulus, and without Aeneas of the Trojan War. Right. So, yeah, and all of those things intertwine in these, these stories. So we thought of a few things that we wanted to highlight and bring to light to discuss today. And so the first thing that we wanted to talk about was Alexander Hamilton. What's his name? I said his name is Alexander Hamilton. You guys, we got Derek to sing. On the podcast. On the podcast. That's, that's you know, I, I'm, I, I'm sorry, everyone. I won't sing again. I must have been terrible. For oh, you he'll all. sing again. You know, I promise I will. Okay. So for those of you that don't know Hamilton, it is a musical that is inspired from a biography of Alexander Hamilton written by... Ron Chernow. Oh, the, the biography. I was thinking oh, of yeah. the musicals written by Lin-Manuel Lin Miranda, who is just, I mean, he's dude's just a genius. So let's yeah, just he's call Shakespeare. It what it is. Yeah, he yeah. Is, he's the modern Shakespeare. Um, and it's a hip-hop-themed musical about Alexander Hamilton's life. And it starts in the American Revolution and it goes through to the presidency of Thomas Jefferson in terms right. of the events. And it is fantastic. The entire musical is available to listen by the original Broadway cast on Apple Music, Spotify, wherever you stream your music. Um, but definitely listen to it. It is phenomenal. And what's central to Alexander Hamilton What's central to George Washington, the characters in this musical, the two main characters, uh, you know, the Marquis de Lafayette, is that they are fighting at overwhelming odds at all times for the opportunity to self-govern. Right. Yeah, you know, we talk about Hamilton uh, in specific as a uh, really an incarnation of this story, but we really are talking about the American Revolution as uh, as a whole, as a as a national legend, um, you know, it is a moment in our history, but it is such a, um, it's such an important moment and such a grounding moment for us as a country. It really set the tone for American ideals, I think, throughout the last uh, couple hundred years. We're talking about the actual, the actual revolution. As it happens, you have a student of history sitting to your left. You like history, Derek? Just a little bit. I think Derek likes history. Yeah. And I'm learning so much about him. You know, it's funny, just a, a side tangent, you know, about three years ago, I was just walking around through Philadelphia on my day off, and I just, uh, I forget why, I just wanted to go for a walk, and I just started touring all of the historical sites of Philadelphia, which kicked off this sort of Derek romanticism for the American Revolution, and I just started reading books about the American Revolution and books about the Founding Fathers, and um, I probably read maybe a dozen at this point. Uh, in particular, focusing on like military tactics, fo 
focusing on the philosophical side, focusing on just how did you get an entire nation to actually rebel against Britain? Yeah, and, and the Enlightenment ideals that really were the underpinnings of the entire thing that really uh, bolstered that revolution because you had this way of thought that was logic-based and that was really beyond uh, the, the contemporary governmental philosophy, I would say. Right, and well, the thing that I think the Hamilton the musical does so well, and to be fair, we haven't seen it, we've only listened to it, but we do have tickets for it. Yep. Um, it's coming up not until May, but in, anyway, that you, you get the sense when you read the military history of the American Revolution, just put things in context, we're in Philadelphia, so it would be like if you took the local Philadelphia high school football team and asked them to play the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah, and yeah, I would say that's that 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 would be odds. the 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 sort of and who would vote on the the high school football team to win that? I mean, with the ever. Eagles team right now, though, they'd probably be fine. Yes, but I mean, you could take this metaphor to any sports town in the country, right? right, right? right. Like, it doesn't have to be the Philadelphia How about Eagles. The 1976 Philadelphia Flyers. Uh, take them against the local hockey team, yeah. which probably doesn't exist in Philadelphia, and if you do exist. I apologize for offending you. Um, but my, my point being is that the American historical narrative is very much an underdog narrative, mm-hmm. in, in not in just in mythos, in reality. And that has kind of seeped its way into our storytelling. Yeah. And there's no better version of that that I know of than Hamilton that really I agree. tells that story. And, and Hamilton's not about being historically accurate because... Some parts of it are, some parts of it aren't, but it's an amazing right. way to 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 turn that into a, a a story, a workable start, middle, end story where you're following this character Alexander Hamilton, and you're really, really rooting for him. He's really, really flawed, and the backdrop of that is that you're fighting for and then forming a country. Right. The stakes couldn't be higher. Yeah, and what I will say about historical accuracies there. It, it takes so many liberties in terms of style um, to to retrofit it for a, a modern audience that it's really less about being like 100% every single historical thing is perfect, but it does absolutely attempt to tell the truth. So there's like the historical accuracy or there's the truth and the truth that underlies the character, that underlies uh, the really the, the sense of forming that nation, the heart of the nation, I think is... Well, it's What's most important. It's important to look at it as the the truth of the character Alexander exactly. Hamilton, not the truth of actual. Like, no, 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 no. If, yeah, like I think it's important to separate. Those. I'm talking about a different kind of truth than like what actually 100 percent accurately happened. I'm talking about like in your gut truth. Well, right, my 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 thing is that who knows what Alexander Hamilton was actually thinking? Exactly. You know, so I think. We the reason Alexander the Hamilton the character has that gut truth is because its backdrop is the rebellion. The right. backdrop is the revolution. It's fighting against these overwhelming odds. It's finding success when all of the rules seem stacked against you. Yeah. And I think that 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 is very much a huge part of what makes that tale done in a contemporary setting so compelling and so interesting and and so amazing. And so easy for our audiences to accept. Uh, so you can take any historical event, put it in you know, a hip-hop musical, and hope for the best. Sure, maybe it would work. Maybe it wouldn't. I like to think that because 
Hamilton and because the the backdrop of the of the rebellion is so ingrained in our philosophy as we grow up as Americans, uh, it's so much easier for us to swallow and us to root for because by nature we are taught that the American dream is the story of the underdog. And so when we are faced with underdogs in media and we're faced with rebellion in media, we're more likely to, I think, side with the rebels. I think it's an important cultural touchstone for us that, uh, you know, even when, and we'll talk more to this later, even when we're faced with, you know, a galaxy far, far away and rebels against an empire or, you know, District 12 rebelling against the Capitol, I think we're instantly able to put ourselves in those shoes because we've been, you know, we've been taught this in our, our earliest years that this is what you do. Yeah, I think that's an amazing, amazing point. I think you touching on Star Wars and Hunger Games, two really awesome stories um, based on the idea of facing the overwhelming odds, facing this incredibly huge power structure and being able to topple that as a huge part of of the the conflicts that, that, that happens. You know, in the Hunger Games series, it's Katniss against the world the whole time. Right. The entire story is everything is stacked against her. She doesn't have any luxury. She doesn't have she doesn't have any um, main advantages. And she is the most unlucky. Like the odds are not in her favor at all in uh, any way, shape or I'll form. See what you did there. Oh, yeah. Thank uh, you. And, and her story and the story of Hunger Games in general uh, really tends to remind me of the French Revolution. Uh, and I would love to talk Ooh, a little bit yeah. about stories inspired by the French Revolution. But oui, oui, oui. when you look at Hunger Games uh, and you see the districts that are really living in poverty, that are this working class, uh, you know, proletariat, uh, who are faced with the decadence and the uh, this sort of sublime overindulgence of the capital where people are, you know, this bourgeoisie who kind of have access to resources that the the working class don't, they don't really have to work that hard if they work at all, but they kind of sit back and enjoy entertainment and, you know, they watch the districts duke it out for each other. Like let them eat cake. You know, it's so like they, they in the first, you know, time that you go and spoiler alert for the hunger games, the first time that Katniss goes to the Capitol, it couldn't be clearer that the capital just reaps all of the benefit from the labor of all the other districts while Absolutely. the other districts are just left in, de- in in decay. It's an absolute sort of Marxist style metaphor. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, it's appalling because the people in, you know, dressed in their best as they go to the reaping, they go to sacrifice someone and they have these like tattered, very outdated dresses mm-hmm. and then you go and you see the clothing of the capital and you see these like bizarre styles that are just so over the top and crazy yeah they're very haute couture and uh we're talking specifically about the movies sure. um here because i think they're a little more i think more people have probably seen the movies than read the books i also haven't read the books i'm I sorry read the books either yeah i'm sorry to the the fans of the hungry games sorry I everyone um but yeah, I do think it has a lot in common with the French Revolution in terms especially of the economic inequality that really uh, suffuses the the first, uh, you know, the introduction to the series. Um, but on the subject, back to musicals. Sure. I wanted to touch briefly on Les Mis, 
which um, or Les Miserables, which was a, a huge inspiration for Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's funny about that is that the American Revolution was a huge inspiration to the French Revolution. If that makes sense. So wait, let me let me connect these dots here. So there was the American Revolution, right, and happened in history. Yeah. That connects a dot to the French Revolution happens in history. Yes. Then there's Les Miserables, inspired by the French Revolution, Uh which then comes back and inspires Hamilton, inspired by the American Revolution. Yes. If that didn't blow your mind, I don't know what will. And when we say Les Mis uh, refers to the French Revolution, it actually refers to a specific moment in history called the June Rebellion, which is post-French Revolution. It's 1832, I believe. Whoa, whoa, whoa. French Revolution, but not French Revolution? Yeah, so it is inspired by a lot of the same uh, grievances of the French Revolution, but after the events of the Revolution, uh, a whole lot went on. You know, Reign of Terror, Napoleon, uh, and then they were temporarily restored to a monarchy. So the major event of Les Mis is an anti-monarchist uh, insurrection rebellion. So when they're on the barricade and everything, uh, that's years and years after the French Revolution proper. But awesome. those same things stuck around. Yeah, excellent historical knowledge there, Laurel. Thanks. Uh, but Les Mis, uh, for the French, uh, the musical was inspired, of course, uh, or based, of course, on the book by Victor Hugo, which tells the story of the aching proletariat, the uh the poor, impoverished people on the streets of France who who rose up years before saying we deserve more because uh, like 1% of the population owns 99% of the wealth. Weird. Um, yeah, that doesn't happen anymore. That doesn't oh. even happen anymore. Wait, is that happening now? Is that happening now? Oh, I don't I know why I'm talking quietly. Now. I'm literally talking to a microphone. Yeah, you're mic'd. Um, I've done that before. I've whispered. Yeah, you're mic'd. Uh, anyway. anyway, so yeah, so the yeah, the proletariat is is once again being like, okay, we we still don't have better conditions, so let's rise up, let's revolt, uh, and it ends in spoiler alert, total tragedy. Yeah, um, it's it's a really sad story. It's literally called the miserable, the miserable ones. Um, so it doesn't end well, but inspired by that spirit of rebellion. Um, People find people find something inside themselves to to rise up against the bigger, the greater, the more powerful. And with lame is, um, I'll just shorten it to lame is. That's what most people call it. I think most people do. Um, it highlights the idea that you're not always going to win. Right. Sometimes you lose. Yeah. Sometimes you fight the fight, and this happens in storytelling. This happens in life, and sometimes you're not going to secure the objective despite all of the passion, the intelligence, the the drive, and also being fundamentally morally right in that scenario. Yeah. The bad guys can sometimes win. And this is going to bring me back to a, a, a that book I'm, t- I'm talking about uh, with Madeline Albright. Uh, she talks about near the end of World War II, uh, the Czechs were still under German occupation, even though Hitler had died. And they were trying trying their best to continue resisting the German occupation. 
uh, and awaiting the liberation of either the Soviet Union or uh, the United States, and no one was coming for them. And so they just started taking it into their own hands. So they started taking down German signs and replacing swastikas with Czech flags, and they started building barricades, much like the characters in Les Mis, and fighting. And what Madeline says about this is that the odds were, were so great. The odds were so great, it was not logical. Like, they were not going to win. This was not going to help them get out. They still needed an outside force to liberate them, but they needed to know that they fought for this. And that fight became a part of that myth. You know, it's a nation with a thousand-year history, but the Czechs had this. They, they, they didn't lie down and take that occupation anymore. They stood up and they fought. And that was really important to them going forward, especially out of this war back into the hands of the Soviets. So another piece of history there. That's, that, that, that's amazing. You know yeah. what? You know what? That makes me think, um, which because I, I, I love that. Um, in Hamilton, the success of the revolution is not a foregone conclusion in the narrative. Mm-hmm. As much as it was not a foregone conclusion to those who were engaged in it. Right. And we often look at this period of our past as, of course we were going to win. Of course we were going to become America. Of course America was going to conquer North America. Because we're the most powerful nation in the world. And of course we were going to become the hegemonic empire that we are today. Right. However, that's not a foregone conclusion. When you resist, you may fail. But... What happens when you win is such an amazing part of the American story. And you mentioned that in the check that the saying, we have to do this because there's a part of us that would rather not exist unless we resist. That's amazing. Yeah, exactly. Which brings us as in all things to Star Wars. To Star Wars. And all seriously, we talk about Star Wars a lot because it's probably the perfect story. It, yeah, it's probably the perfect story. Uh, but, but yeah, what that was kind of sending me on a, a hurtling train towards was Rogue One. Oh yeah, yeah. Spoiler alert. We've as we've, always we've mentioned Rogue One. Rogue One to me was the dark side of the rebellion. I see what you did there. Yeah. Um, thank you. I appreciate that. And guys, if you haven't seen Rogue One yet, if you're Star Wars fans, oh please, go actually, see it. actually, if, if you just like good movies, the world, just go see, just go see Rogue One. In Rogue One, one of the main characters starts off. He's a spy for the rebellion, mm-hmm. and he's getting intelligence from another spy. And that other spy is nervous, and they suddenly are getting caught. And the other spy is, I think, I forget what it is, but is physically lame. And can't climb away to escape the Imperials. So what does the one spy getting the intel do? Shoots him in the back. Because he'd rather his source be killed than get captured. And it shows you the insane cost of blood that a rebellion needs to have. And it's gritty and it's real. Right. And the the mission that these um, these rebels take on eventually, this kind of ragtag team of misfits really take on is is to foil the death star that they're building uh by capturing the plans and you know if, if hopefully if you haven't seen it you've already 
turned it off because we're going to talk about the ending. Um, yeah, turn turn it off now. I just spoiled like the first scene. Yeah, but we've talked about overwhelming odds on this this episode already, but those odds were insanely overwhelming, and they took every risk. And they said, you know, um, Felicity Jones's character Jin or so, she says, "We'll we'll take a chance, and then we'll take the next chance, and then the next until we run out of chances." Yeah, until essentially saying we're pretty much on a suicide mission here. Right. And it turns out that's that's right. Yeah. I mean, I could talk about Rogue One and what that meant for me as a Star Wars movie all day, like all day, every day. But in the context of this conversation is it showed what the stakes are to actually rebel. Yeah. And to win a rebellion, to legitimately resist there'll be a point where you're like, what is the moral line that we're willing to, to, to cross? And, and that a rebellion will constantly push you against that line. Right. At every point in time, you'll be like, well, this is the moral line. The rebellion doesn't do this. But we kind of have to do this. Otherwise, the rebellion's going to be gone. Yeah. And Sometimes you have, to, you have to make those calculations. But it is also fundamentally aspirational. Meaning, I might do this terrible thing now so that I can secure whatever I need to do for the rebellion. But the idea is that so the next generation won't have to do these things. Yeah. So it's, it's a fundamentally aspirational. So should the rebellion in Star Wars succeed, that there will be a generation that can grow up in peace that doesn't have to do what this other generation has to do. So it's about handing something better which I also think is a part of the American mythos. Yeah. Every generation wants yeah, to hand a better. Yeah. yeah. Every generation wants to hand a more perfect union to the one behind it. One that's freer, one with more access to resources, one that has, you know, fundamentally just more perfect. I mean, it's part of what is in our DNA as Americans. I say that because it's not literally DNA, but you get what I'm saying. <laughs> and yeah, our cultural DNA, if you will. And I think when you look at Rogue One, when you look at, like, for example, their casting choices, the fact that it was a entirely diverse class that or, or diverse cast, pardon mm -hmm. me, I'm having talking issues. So the fact that the the main actors in that were not this the typical Hollywood, uh, for lack of a better term, Brad Pitt's, you know what right, I mean? Like. Sure. Yeah. Like, but there's nothing wrong with that if that's what you cast. Like, no, I'm not Brad demonizing Pitt is that. Great, absolutely. Brad Pitt's awesome, but the fact that they want another direction, saying that there's an entire uh, amount of people in this galaxy who are being systematically denied and oppressed and disenfranchised, and yeah, and they're fighting against that, yeah, I think was a a core part of where we're at in society today. And I know that 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 might offend some people, and I don't intend to. But there are people disenfranchised and marginalized, and they are part of the resistance. And and by coming together, we can rise up. And yet, I think here's the ultimate thing that we can learn. Whether you are a fan of rebellion in a storytelling context, and or whether you're a fan of American rebellious history or the French Revolution, together we are all strong. 
Yeah. You know, and when, when we band together, there isn't anything we can't do. And that doesn't mean that we have to, that we're, we're all always toppling empires. But let's just remember that the reason those, those stories get us, get us and they, they hit us in that emotional core because we are stronger together. And if we come from a country that, and just to put this in historical context, the British Empire in the late 18th century was the empire. Yeah. Like they were the superpower and on the planet. And for a long while after. Absolutely. And Americans banded together and said, you know what? F you. Yeah. You know, we, we, your interests are not our interest, and we're going to fight. And we're going to dump some tea in the harbor. Absolutely. And if you can do that and win in history or in a narrative, what else can't we do? It's so fundamentally aspirational. Stories of rebellion hit us on that core. Yeah. I'd like to say one more thing. Yeah, I, I, I had one more point too, but you go first. Okay, I'd like awesome. to read one more quote from the book I've been talking about all night. Uh, just to refresh my memory, the the Madeleine Madeline Albright. Albright. Yeah, Madeleine Albright. Yeah. Okay. Uh, first female Secretary of State. Uh, the book is called Prague Winter, and this is in the introduction to the book. She says, what fascinates me and what serves as a central theme of this book is why we make the choices we do. What separates us from the world we have and the kind of ethical universe envisioned by someone like Havel. Here she refers to Václav Havel, uh, former president of the Czech Republic and a, a poet and beacon of democracy. What prompts one person to act boldly in a moment of crisis and a second to seek shelter in the crowd? Why do some people become stronger in the face of adversity while others quickly lose heart? What separates the bully from the protector? Is it education, spiritual belief, our parents, our friends, the circumstances of our birth, traumatic events, or more likely some combination that spells the difference? More succinctly, do our hopes for the future hinge on a desirable unfolding of external events or some mysterious process within? And I would say after our discussion tonight, you know, asking that question, is it about you know, thinking you're going to win? Is it about something else deep inside you? I'd say that question is what defines a hero. I mean, I'd say drop the mic, but the mics are on stands and that would give feedback. I thought that was beautiful. Yeah. Truthfully, like I'm a little... That's from the introduction. Highly recommend this book, guys. By the way, what I wanted to talk about seems trite and silly after that. Go ahead. I don't know. I feel like we should let that. All right. Well, the only thing I was going to say um, was that how much I enjoyed the superhero as a story. Yes. Yeah. And that the superhero is often also the revolutionary in the respect that the superhero could is most often pitted against insane odds, having to go against some sort of individual that may have infiltrated the government or may have infiltrated, uh, you know, business and has an empire. Think of like Kingpin, Dr. Doom, Lex Luthor, that the, the, the have these imperial, I'm sorry, imperial aspirations. For, for my edification, Dr. Doom, Kingpin. Okay. So Kingpin and Dr. Doom are both super villains. 
Kingpin is essentially the king gangster of New York in the Marvel universe. Okay. He's part of the Daredevil. If you oh, watch okay. the show Daredevil, he's the bad guy. Okay. Which, if you haven't watched, I highly recommend. It's a great show. Mm-hmm. Um, Doctor Doom runs a country. I'm blanking on the name of the country. It's in, in Eastern Europe. And um, he's essentially the representation of a sort of Soviet-style leader who runs an evil organization. Um, then you have Lex Luthor, who we've talked about before in the podcast. But in any event, there's a standard sort of superhero versus villain where the villain has this massive empire and this massive wealth, status, prestige. And it's all bent on this like maligned purpose. And it's only the superhero that sees the malign purpose mm. and that they have to fight against that, that I think also resonates with us as Americans and that there, there's an air, a spirit. And this is not true of every superhero narrative. So some don't follow this template, right. but it happens enough that it's worth mentioning that I think the reason that connects with us, you know, whether like Red Skull, who owns Hydra, which is a fascist secret society that Captain America fights against. You know, Captain America fighting against a fascist society, yeah, you know, right. like, so I feel like there is a part of that narrative there that connects uh, to the sort of broader theme that in America, in particular, part of the universal story is overwhelming odds that the underdog, the rebel, the 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 band of people that have nothing left to lose, but say, you know what, F it, I'm going to go for it anyway. And I'm going to fight at all costs. I think that is part of our midnight myth. Yeah. We should totally play a game. Okay. All right. So what's the game? Okay. So every week on the Midnight Myth podcast, if you've listened, you know the spiel. Uh, We're going to play a little game to lighten the mood because we usually end in a place a little heavier than we planned. Uh, Yeah, we do get real here, don't we? We tend to get real. Um. Yeah, please play along. Uh, send us your responses on Twitter and Facebook. Twitter at The Midnight Myth on Facebook, The Midnight Myth. Or drop us a line on the website, myth, midnightmyth.com. Tonight's game, we're actually going to revisit the game from episode one. However, in episode twist. one, we talked about villains. And in this episode, we really talked about heroes. So an American heroes, American heroes. So the question is, if you are in the zombie apocalypse, what hero would you want on your side? You go first, because I actually haven't thought of mine yet. Oh, okay. So that'll give me some opportunity. So it's very hard in the hero world for me to choose any hero other than the hero, which is Batman. But I'm not going to choose Batman. But I just want to let everyone know. Yeah, I just want to let everyone know. I thought about choosing Batman and I ultimately didn't because, you know, we talked about Batman a lot last week. So I'm going to go a uh, a sort of, you know, Midnight Myth style boomerang. I'm going to go Captain America. Captain America. Yes. One, because we talked a lot about American history in this podcast. And I feel like Captain America is kind of the American hero. I mean, obviously, he's called Captain America. No, duh. But he represents this idea of someone who is small, insignificant, unpowerful, who 
you know, doesn't um, shy away from bullies nevertheless. And because of that, gets powerful. And his power is always benevolent. It's inherently not because he wants power, but it's because he wants to protect. And what's his weapon? It's a shield. Right? Yeah. It's a protective thing. Yeah. And if you're out there in the zombie apocalypse, and the entire world is just ended, who better than Steve Rogers, Captain America, to sit there and inspire you and give you hope and to help you fight through zombies. And when you're like, man, I don't think I can do it anymore. Well, Captain America will turn and look at you and be like, you know, I didn't feel that way when I killed Red Skull. <laughs> but as it turned out, I realized that I had to fight through this. And I feel like he would be so aspirational. And I want this podcast, I want the podcast about the rebels to understand that this is fundamentally an aspirational podcast and Batman was too brooding. That's why I didn't choose him for this. I guarantee you it was a tough choice. I really thought about Captain America versus Batman, but I I'm went glad with Captain you chose America. Captain America. I think it's really good. I think and, that's really nice. And respect to the, the comic nerds out there. I'm aware that in the comics, Captain America is currently a bad guy. And Oh, come on. Really? I haven't read any of those comics, so I'm going to judge them anyway. I don't like it. Yeah, shame on you. Actually, if I read the comics and they're good stories, I'd probably like them. But, you know, because it's all about execution in the comic world, yeah. not about continuity. But anyway, Captain America is a currently a bad guy in the comics, and I'm like, Psh, whatever. He's my hero in the zombie apocalypse. All right. I like it. I bet you know who my hero is. I actually have no idea. I just thought of it. I actually thought of something while you were talking and then I changed my mind. Oh, because okay. Obviously it- it's Buffy Summers. Oh, you picked Buffy. Come yeah. on now. Come on now. She's fought zombies. She's a super she logical choice. Zombies. Yeah, she's a like, super, super logical yeah, choice. Yeah, yeah, and not just zombies, but, you know, enchanted zombies and vampires and gods and demons and witches and uh, and everything in between and ghosts and aliens. And her own demons. And her own inner demons. That's a good choice. Yeah. Yeah. but And I the mean, cat burgers. Yeah, I mean, Buffy would be there in the zombie apocalypse. Yeah. You you know it. You know who I almost chose? Who? Eleven. Ah. Yeah. So for those who don't know who Eleven is, who's Eleven? Eleven from Stranger Things, also known as Elle, I was thinking about, because she, uh, you know, she's a 12-year-old girl who has been, you know, psychological experiments have been performed upon her, but she has telekinesis, and she's really good at looting stores. For egos. Right. So um, she'd be very helpful in a zombie so, apocalypse in so that, that way. That, that, that's a good one. So you just gave your first and second choice. Wow. And your second choice was Batman. That's true. Well, I I feel actually horrible saying that my second choice is Batman. Oh. That really didn't make me feel good. I know. It's okay. We're going to put some mac and cheese in that hole in your heart. Oh, that sounds lovely. So, yeah, guys, tweet us your responses. A few quick shout outs. We now have two reviews. Count them. One, two Two reviews reviews. on iTunes. Yeah, so we have two reviews on iTunes. Um, If you guys like the show, if you review us on iTunes, believe it or not, that super, 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 super helps the show. Yeah, it helps us get out there. 
Uh, we also have a blog on our website. So they are the companion piece. So we post the podcast then with a blog. So please go to our website, www.midnightmyth.com. Did I get that right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. I kind of went away from the mic because I've gotten that wrong before. Um, but yeah, hit us up. We, we want to hear from you. Yeah, well, yeah, we would love to hear from you. There's a contact form on the website as well. Uh, eventually, we'll get a uh, mailing list out there. Tweet at us, Facebook, MidnightMyth.com. We love you. Yeah, we love you. Um, any uh, any final words there, Laurel? Rise up. When you're living on your knees, you... Rise up. Until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind.